morning. Good morning, church family. My name is Joel Lapierre, and I am the high school director here at LBC. It's so good to see you this morning and worship with you. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We've been in 1 Samuel this whole summer long, and uh, we'll continue in it. Uh, a few things before we get started. Uh, we have the high school or high school and junior high um, fireworks booth out on the south end of our parking lot. And if you are going to buy fireworks, we really ask that you consider buying fireworks from us. It's uh, incredibly helpful for uh, sending our kids to camp. As many of you parents here know that um, camp is incredibly expensive and it keeps getting more expensive. And so um, our fireworks booth is really, really helpful in, in helping with those costs and keeping them low. So please consider buying them after um, service today. They're, they're open right now. Uh, second thing, I just want to express my, um, my gratitude um, to this church. Uh, it was, it's been five years, July 1st, this, this last Friday, that I've been the high school director here at LBC. And so I just want to um, really thank you all for the honor and the opportunity to serve here at LBC. Not only that, I've been here since 1993. That's when I was born. And uh, I've been here my entire life. And it, what, a, what a privilege for me. And uh, I just love this church so much. And I love serving here at LBC. And and that's really made possible by your guys' support. And so thank you for all that. Let's pray as we dive into God's word. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to look at your word. Um, God, just thinking about 4th of July and the founding of our nation. God, thank you that we have religious freedom. God, that we're even able to gather here without persecution, to preach your word, to hear from you, God. We thank you so much for that. We thank you for providing for us, God, and most importantly, providing your son Jesus to go to the cross, live a perfect life, and die for us so that we would have eternal life. Thank you for that sacrifice. Thank you for the gospel, Lord. Pray that in this time, God, that you would speak through me, God, that, you'd, um, that I'd honor you with my words. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with the term postmodernism. I believe Eric brings it up every once in a while. But postmodernism is a philosophical belief um, that essentially is, is skeptic of anything being absolutely true, especially when it comes to religion. And this often boils uh, down to the idea that everyone's point of view is true. Uh, every perspective is valid. Um, but as Christians, logically, we understand that if there is a God, then there really can be only one absolute truth. If God is creator, he's created everything, then it can be truly only one absolute truth. We as humans, we only see in part, but God sees the whole with perfect sovereign clarity, perfect vision of all things. His point of view is ultimately what we need because we only see in part. And so this morning, as we look at the text, we're going to answer this question. Why is seeing life God's way important? So let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1 of chapter 16, Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. If you're following along in the notes, first point, sin, failure, and especially the downfall of a leader overwhelms, but God's purposes remain. We see here in the text that God is rebuking Samuel for grieving for, for too long. We don't know the timeline here, but between chapter 15, verse 35, and chapter 16, verse 1, apparently there had been some time, and apparently it would have been too long for Samuel to be grieving over the downfall 
of Saul. What happened previously? Saul was commanded by the Lord to commit to destruction all the Amalekites because of their evilness. And he did not obey that, but he kept the king for himself. And so this has not been the first time that Saul was disobedient, but he was finally rejected. And God had a new mission for Samuel. But Samuel here was grieving, and grieving too long, apparently. His grief grew to an inaction, and so God reminded and rebuked him. And he says in verse, six, uh, verse 1 of uh, chapter 16, Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, so fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provide for myself a king among his sons. So essentially he tells him the time is for mourning is over, the time for grieving is over. He couldn't see, the thing is Samuel couldn't see past this tragedy, this failure. It got to him. He was driven to despair. He was overwhelmed by this tragedy. And likely it's because he probably loved Saul a little bit. He probably um, was concerned over the welfare of Israel as well, knowing that their king was selfish and their king was not, um, not there to serve the Lord. And so this overwhelmed Samuel. And so he was rebuked for it. And I've been there in my own life. I mentioned that just a few minutes ago that I've been a part of this church since 1993. And when I was 14 years old, um, there was a youth pastor that I looked up to a lot here at LBC. And uh, when, I, when I was growing up, my siblings had already pretty much gone through the youth group. My brother was still in the youth group. And um, I saw this man and looked up to him and had a few interactions and was so excited to get to know him. He, he was an example to me of what I wanted to be like when I was older. Um, well, the summer I came in, my freshman year, um, he moved away to go plant a church. And it wasn't a few months after that that it was found out that he was having an affair. He was having an affair. And this shattered me. You know, the little faith I did have at 14 years old was pretty much all but wiped out. And I wasn't the only one. This happened to my siblings as well. This happened to most of the youth group. We were, we were broken over the sin of a leader, over the downfall of a leader that I looked up to. I thought to myself, how could a pastor do such a thing? How could a pastor who teaches on sexual morality have an affair? How could this be possible? How could God allow this? It shook me. It was only a few months after all this happened that Pastor Eric was actually hired as my youth pastor. And when he came into the youth group, he was, he was met by a lot of skepticism. You know, we just had a guy who had an affair. So, like, what's, how's this guy going to be any different? And, and so he, he took some time to evaluate and as you guys know, Eric's pretty analytical. If you, you see him here in his preaching, he, he analyzes things so well. Well, he analyzed us really well. He analyzed our youth group really well. And he looked at our youth group, and he came up with this vision statement that is kind of cheesy now looking back on it, but I, I really appreciate it. And it's, it, it was good enough for me to memorize. So, But it's broken people bringing broken people to Jesus. That was kind of his little mantra, his little vision statement for our youth group. And there's a word repeated twice there for a reason, broken. What he wanted us to know is that we were broken. We were broken. We were broken because of the sin of another person, the downfall of, some, of a leader. But he also wanted us to understand that we were broken ourselves. That really, in reality, we, we weren't much different than him. We were sinful. We 
are no different. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. So Eric analyzed our youth group, and he would say things like this. The church is more like a hospital where the sick come for healing than it is a place for the successful. That really rung true with me because I I, I felt like I I failed at everything. I, I wasn't faithful very much at all. This, this taught us so much. But he kept reminding us that this one man's sin is no justification for our own. This one man's sin was no justification to fall away. No justification to lose faith in God. No man is faithful. Only God is faithful. Not a single person in this room is wholly faithful. Only God is. He's the one worthy. So maybe you find yourself here this morning, you know, struggling with the sin of maybe your own sin, sin of your spouse, sin of a, a leader, a spiritual leader, a pastor. Even think about this, just in the short time I've been in ministry, I've seen so many, you know, famous pastors and Christian leaders fall by the wayside. And, and, and I've had many people that I used to listen to and watch and, and learn from and read their books and, you know, they're gone. So this happens. So what are we to do about it? How are we to move forward? This, this summer um, in high school ministry on Wednesday nights, I've been preaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And a couple weeks ago, I preached through 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And there's something really uh, important there. In 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul's explaining to the Thessalonians why he sent Timothy to them. Um, so Paul had gone to Thessalonica and he had come and preached, but they were persecuted, and so he had to get out of there really fast. And so he had started a church there, and they'd come to faith, but their faith was quite small. They didn't know very much. And so he sent Timothy back to encourage them and, and to um, exhort them. But he says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, he says, you know, I sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith. Establish and exhort you in your faith. And the reality is if, you find, if you're shaken, if you're overwhelmed by the down, downfall of leaders, you need to be grounded in the word of God because it is no justification to fall away. It is no justification in our sin. Ground yourselves in the word of God. The Bible is God's view of things. The Bible is God's point of view. Something that Eric helped us really learn is uh, theology. You know, I, I thought, you know, when I was in high school, I was a jock. I didn't like books. You know, I thought they were lame, you know, but you started to learn about theology and start to study more and study the doctrines of sin, of sanctification, of grace, of final judgment, that God will deal accordingly with his servants. And I hope you don't understand me wrong here. I'm not trying to give an apologetic or a defense for sinful pastors. They will be judged. They will be held accountable for the responsibility of the church. And so we got to ask this question, why is seeing life God's way important? Well, the failure of leaders can be overwhelming, even shake your faith, but God's purposes remain. It doesn't change the truth. You need to be established in your faith. You need to build your life on the rock that is God's word. Look at Matthew uh, chapter 7 with me. It should be up. Uh, Verses 24 through 25 says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
Our lives need to be like this. We need to build our life on God's word. So when the storms come, when something shakes our faith, we've built our life on the word of God. We know what the word says. We've been established in the faith. We won't be shaken because we see how God sees. God's purposes remain for you and I, and they remain for Samuel. Look back at verse one or verse two. We're only gone through one verse so far. Um, starting in verse two, it says, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me, me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. If you're following along in the notes, next point is fear and assumption cloud our vision, but God sees with sovereign clarity. You see, we find here that Samuel is uh, struggling to see things the way God see, sees things. He's struggling with fear. Right now, he's, he's asking that question in verse 2, how can I go if Saul hears it, he will kill me. He's worried that if he goes and anoints the next king, then Saul's going to hear it and he's going to kill him. This fear is clouding his vision. He can't see how this could possibly work. He can't see very far in front of him. You know, fear oftentimes, uh, fear looks kind of like this, kind of like my first behind the wheel. And of course, I have to make a high school illustration here. One of my first behind the wheels, uh, this poor gentleman that was with me, uh, we were driving south on Gosford out near some farmland and a sandstorm came through while I was driving. I was still really confident, by the way, but um, the sandstorm comes through and I couldn't see past the hood of my car. I couldn't see past the hood of my car. Fear is often like that. You can't see very far. It overwhelms this fear. We can't see past our circumstances. So it's kind of like in parenting, you ask the question, how could I be a good parent? I can't possibly see beyond these problems that I have that I'm facing or in our own sin. How could I confess my sin to my spouse? How can I confess the sin? They'll, they'll reject me. They'll leave me. They won't accept me. We're in discipleship. How can I disciple somebody? I, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. But the reality is here that Samuel's reminded of is that God is with them and God provides a way. He tells them to go make a sacrifice. Go invite the elders and the people of Bethlehem to a sacrifice and provides that way. God knew. God had a vision. But Samuel was clouded. His fear his vision was clouded by fear. His judgment was impaired, but God sees with sovereign clarity. Let's look at uh, verse 6 and 7. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Samuel here, we find that he's, he's again in the wrong. Poor Samuel. 
He assumes Eliab is God's chosen king based off appearance. Samuel is looking at him. He's looking at life. He's looking at these things through his own subjective lens. Eliab, he looks like Saul. He's, he's tall. He's, uh, he's the oldest son. It just, just makes sense to him. And this is where we see a, ga- a great contrast in sight. We see God's sovereign clarity. In verse 7, he, re- he tells him, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So here we see that God sees with sovereign clarity that we see here that God looks on the heart. uh, Samuel could only see with his own human eyes, but God sees directly into the heart. And he sees the king that he wants. And something that Eric has said a few times, I think during the series, but I think it's important to bring up again, because you'll see in the next couple of sections we're going to read here, is that God, thing, God does things in a certain way so that there is no doubt that it is he who is doing it. And you're going to see that here in a second. Because God not only has his man, but he picks a very unlikely person for a reason. Look at verse 8 with me. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So at face value, this might look like David actually looks like a pretty likely king. But that's not the description here if we look a little bit further, a little bit closer. First of all, we see that Jesse, either he uh, didn't want David to be there or he, you know, forgot about David. Any of you fathers ever forgot your son at a park? Don't raise your hand for that. But no, that's not really what's going on here. Actually, Dave, uh, David was left because he wasn't considered worthy. He was the youngest. He wasn't going to be picked. He wasn't you know, honored to be at the sacrifice. He was the runt. He was the smallest. He was the youngest. If you look at the description here, in verse 11 it says, there remains yet the youngest. That Hebrew word can also mean smallest, which is interesting as well. But in verse 12, they sent him, and now here's the description of him which is very interesting. It says he was ruddy. Now, ruddy, that Hebrew word, just simply means red, and, and most commentators believe it. It was referring to his complexion. So he was rosy-cheeked. He was a little kid, and he had beautiful eyes. And so essentially, David was a rosy-cheeked, baby-faced kid with pretty eyes. This isn't the kind of king that you would expect. This isn't a warrior, a tall, strong warrior man that you expect to save Israel, to lead Israel. This was a little kid. He was likely between 10 and 15. But yet, this was God's king. This was God's man. He looked on his heart and saw something he wanted. And we, in 1 Samuel uh, 13, 14, we see a little bit of that. 1 Samuel 13, 14, it says, But now your kingdom, this is speaking to Saul after he um, was disobedient. 
Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so David was a man after God's own heart. He had faith. Now, Pastor Andy did a great job last week of showing the difference between Saul and David, but I'll remind you simply David was a murderer and an adulterer. Many, a few chapters after this, you'll see that. So how is he a man after God's own heart? He was a man of faith, and he had genuine repentance, whereas Saul did not, and that's what made them different. So we ask this question again, why is seeing life God's way important? Well, we see that our sight is flawed. Our sight is clouded by fear, by sin, by earthly assumptions, Because we do not see things in the whole, but only in part. God sees with sovereign clarity. He sees it all. What I mean by sovereign, by the way, is God rules over all. He created all and he sees through it all. So an application point for you this morning. When's the last time you got down on your knees and considered God's will for your life? When's the last time you sought God's will? You sought clarity from God on your job on how to lead your home, on how to love your spouse, who to marry, how to parent, how to serve Jesus in difficult circumstances. Samuel ultimately should have been looking and seeking God's will and not assuming. He should have been seeking God's will, and so should we. Let's continue on. Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servant, servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. If you're following along in the notes, last point, your future is unknown, but God knows it and directs it. What we see here is God sovereignly orchestrating and directing David's path. He's setting him up as in, in a place of success in Saul's court, and he's tearing down Saul's court, his kingship. And this is the beginning of the end for Saul. But real quick with me, can you just imagine the kind of confusion that David and Samuel might have at this point? You know, between, you know, the, the anointing in this time, there's still the opportunity and the, the potential that David could be found out as being anointed and Samuel doing that and be killed for it. That was very likely. And we know later on in chapters that Saul did go after David and try to kill him. 
And so there's incredible confusion for David and Samuel at this point. They don't know their future, but they have to trust in God. And ultimately, as readers here, as we get to see the text, and then the author of this scripture gave us the opportunity to see that God was orchestrating all this. A few things need to be explained in this text as it can be kind of confusing. Uh, it, it speaks in verse 13 and 14 about the, the spirit rushing upon David and the spirit leaving Saul. We need to uh, make some distinctions here because the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is very different than the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament with believers. With the Old Testament, we see in Judges 14, you see Samson is a great example of this. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon or takes control of Samson to judge Israel, to save Israel from the Philistines. We see this with Saul multiple times, that the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him to control him so that Israel could be saved. This is very much different and one last thing about that too is that it's conditioned upon God's own sovereign purposes and it's conditioned upon obedience. In the New Testament, you can see this in Ephesians 1 and 2, but we see that all New Testament believers, when they place their faith in Jesus Christ, they're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And that's especially in Ephesians 1. And this, this is a promise and unconditional to all believers, relying on God's grace and his faithfulness. Now Saul was judged for this disobedience, and God was sent, or God sent an evil spirit to torment him. And uh, I won't have time to explain all the different parts of this. If you want to know more about it, just ask our resident theologian, Josh White, about that one. Um, but I will explain a little bit of it. Simply, I think it should be an encouraging sign to you. It should be encouraging to you because if you just considered the book of Job alone, we see that God allows Satan. He has to come and get permission from God. And God says, you can do what you want with my servant, only don't kill him. And so, yes, this can happen. But I think it's important to understand that who's really in charge? God allows it. Yes, God allows it. But God ultimately is in charge of it all. And so that should be encouraging. It should instill fear, but not a fear of Satan, not a fear of demons, but a fear of the Lord, a holy fear. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, he says, do not fear those who can kill the body, which would be people or demons, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, referring to God. God is the one we need to fear, not demons. So continue on in this, we see something kind of interesting here. Saul's servants suggest um, that maybe someone should come, you know, if he's struggling with being tormented by an evil spirit, then maybe uh, they should have someone play the, the lyre. And a lyre was like a little um, string instrument. And this is a, a pretty common belief in ancient times. Even some hyper-charismatic churches today even believe this, that music would drive away demons. So we've got to ask the question, is there anything significant, anything special about the lyre? Should we ask John Harrell to bring up an electric lyre for our worship team? Do we need that in our worship? I don't, I don't think so. No, what's significant here is that David had the Spirit of the Lord with him. David had God's sovereign control. He was controlling him. He was orchestrating and directing his steps here. 
God was orchestrating the success of David in the courts of Saul. And so he makes it so. The servant suggests, and David played the lyre, and God directed the steps. Proverbs 16.9 says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So why is seeing life God's way important? Well, your future is certainly unknown. We're just humans. But God knows and directs it. High, um, high schoolers often ask me this, especially when they um, get close to college. But they ask me, you know, if God is sovereign, how much should I plan for? How much of my future sh- should I be thinking about? Should I plan out what college I'm going to go to, who I'll marry, what kind of job? And I always tell them, yes, please do that. <laughs> please plan. Be diligent. Work hard. Prepare yourself. But ultimately, lay those plans at the foot of the cross. Die to yourself. Be willing to give it all for the sake of Jesus Christ. So an application in the the way we'll end this morning is simply trust in God's providence. He will provide. He will direct your steps if you're willing to let him. And this is true for you. This is true for me. We need to see life the way God does because his ways are better, they're pure, and more beautiful and absolute than ours. And he knows and directs our future. So we need to trust in his providence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, God, that you do take care of us. For those who trust in you, those who believe in Jesus Christ, God, you provided a sacrifice for us. And though we don't know our future and it's, it's uncertain, God, we know that you're sovereign over it all and you see it all. And that should be comforting to us. God, you're in control. We thank you so much for that good news that we can trust you, Lord. I pray that we'd be established in our faith when there are leaders around us that fail us. God, that this would not shake our faith, but God, we'd understand that your purposes still remain. God, that Your word is still true. God, we can trust in you through all these things. We love you so much for sending your son, Jesus. Praise in Jesus' name, amen. So this passage is not only um, significant because it's the turning point of Saul's kingdom and the beginning of David's, but David's anointing foreshadows another king born in Bethlehem only 1,000 years later. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he was a son of David, the son of David. And this son of David was an unlikely king, just like David. He did not come with swords. And he was nothing special to look at. And yet he was a man of God's very, very heart. Genesis 3.15, he is the promised seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. All the way back in Genesis 3, when the first sin was committed, God already promised Christ would come. Jesus came. God in the flesh dwelt among us. He came and lived a perfect life. One that we certainly couldn't. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. 
so he lived this perfect life and he died on the cross for you and I so that we would have eternal life in him. So as we take communion now, we take communion as a remembrance of his sacrifice on that cross to be reminded for those who confess that Jesus is Lord and repent of their sins, that his body was broken for us. That's the bread. And his blood, that's the juice, was poured out for us on that cross. And that is sacrifice on that cross atones for our sin. He covers us with his death for all of our sins, our past, present, and future. In 1 Corinthians 11, there's an important warning that we must read. Verse 27, it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So if you're here and you have not yet placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we'd ask you to do that now. We'd ask that you'd refrain from taking the elements by taking communion, that you'd take some time to examine your standing before a holy God, that you have sinned, you have trespassed against a holy God, and he demands payment. The good news is that he's provided that payment in his son, Jesus. So we ask, as we go into this next part, that you consider your standing before a holy God and your need for a savior. Now the cups can be a little bit tricky, but I feel like by now you guys got this pretty well. There's two sides of the cup. Make sure you open up the side with the bread first. Otherwise, you open up the other side and flip it over. It'll spill on you. But make sure you be mindful of that. And spend some time confessing to God your sin. Spend some time even confessing to your own family, to your spouse. Be reminded of God's grace for you. And in a minute, John will lead us in worship. <laughs>